Hello, welcome to the CG Pro podcast. And if you like what you hear tonight, you can follow us at becomecgpro.com or in our Facebook group. And so tonight, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Paul Debevec. Um, Paul should need no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway. Uh, Paul is, if you've been even remotely interested in computer graphics for the last 20 something years, Paul's helped uh, to invent some of the more significant rendering techniques um, in computer graphics and, and is definitely an inspiration to me and many other people. If you've used a renderer any time in the last 20 years, it would have included some of Paul's inventions. Um, Paul is currently the Netflix's director of research for creative algorithms and technology, overseeing the R&D for visual effects and virtual production with computer vision, graphics and machine learning. Um, very well known for his work in, with the light stage um, back from 2002. Um, and his work's been used in many, well, probably all feature films, if we're honest, but um, specifically with light stage work and some of his inventions um, really heavily involved in the, the Matrix and Benjamin Button and uh, too, too many others to mention. So um, I, I will stop it there and say, welcome, Paul. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thanks. It's great to be here. And thanks for putting this cool podcast together. I've enjoyed several of the episodes so far. You get cool folks on here. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you listening to it as well. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to start the conversation just by asking you about the, the early days and what um, whether there was some inspirations or kind of early experiences that inspired you to want to be involved in computer graphics. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly. So I'm just old enough to have seen uh, Star Wars when it was on its first theatrical run. I guess it technically came out when I was five. And by the time I turned six and all my other friends had seen it, my parents said, okay, I guess you're old enough to see Star Wars. So I got to see the film. I guess I thought it was interesting. I was maybe a little young for that to really fully, you know, enjoy everything. But maybe a year or two later on PBS, I saw a documentary about the making of Star Wars. And that really left an impression because I saw, you know, these amazing, you know, technicians and artists doing things with like model miniatures and stop motion animation and uh, rotoscoping and blue screen compositing uh, and doing this, you know, like just amazing artistic technical work in service of creating like, you know, an amazing world somewhere else. And making it seem to exist when, you know, when it really didn't at all. It was just, you know, like a story somebody had had, had thought up. Um, and that got me excited about all these kinds of things. And by the time I got to, um, you know, high school and you know, I did try shooting some stop motion animations and some claymation and I, you know, put my Star Wars toys in front of things that I was trying to do maths and like composite them in. Um, uh, I, I end up becoming like the, the my high school yearbook photographer and the and um, you know for the newspaper photography I developed lots of film and that taught me a bit about you know working with you know dynamic range and exposure and lighting and such uh, but I was really lucky that you know you could start to get home computers uh, around that time that could do not amazing computer graphics but you could do some computer graphics uh, with them and I started. Uh, playing around with uh, trying to create images on the computer because that seemed like a good way to go too. Fantastic. Well, um, 
were, was there something that made you realize um, or, or lean more towards the, the technical end or the aesthetic end? Were they, I know I've gone through this a lot myself, being interested in both and trying to kind of do both, I guess. Um, how, how was that for you? Yeah, that's a um, that's been interesting. I, I remember that my favorite, you know, classes in school were always art and math, and uh, I think I looked for ways to try to uh, combine those things as much as possible. And there really are lots of just you know kind of pressures in our industry to basically like specialize in one um, or the other, because really, you know, the the best motion pictures are are made when every single person is like the best that they possibly can be at the specific thing that they're supposed to do. And so that kind of invites some specialization. Um, but I, I really, uh, you know, have enjoyed doing both. Obviously, I'm, I'm definitely more in the technical side than the artistic side. But you know, for, for a while, right after, you know, kind of in grad school and after grad school, uh, I had a reasonable run of, you know, having kind of a, a paper at SIGGRAPH every year that would present some sort of new computer graphics technique and a, uh, a piece either in the, in the art show uh, or in the SIGGRAPH electronic theater that would basically kind of demonstrate that technique in a, you know, attempted to be kind of creative way or artistic way in some, in some way with, with you know, with, with, with some, some success at least. Um, and then at some point, once I was managing a group, uh, it, it got harder and harder. Like I was able to do that once a year with things like, you know, the Campanile movie and Rendering of Natural Light, Fiat Lux. And then once I was managing a group at USC after grad school, uh, it took like four years before I could make the next film come out because it's just like focusing the attention on that. And I haven't really gotten to make a, a, a film. I got to make a VR experience at Google called Welcome to Lightfields. Uh, but it gets tough. So, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who sort of dreams of, you know, getting back and uh, making another creative piece again. Hopefully, hopefully it'll it'll be a good one. I look forward to it. I've enjoyed all of the ones that you've made so far. I mean, going back to my I did a computer science degree and I remember um, rendering natural light and Fiat Lux coming out and kind of gawping at them and th thinking, wow, this is this is amazing and I want to do more of it. You know, it, honestly uh, inspired me to want to get into computer graphics as well. Um, I remember you actually came to talk at my university in, in Bristol in the late 90s, um, back around the, the Matrix kind of time. And yeah, it was it was really inspiring. So um, yeah, great to great to be talking to you now all these years later. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about um, let's let's go back to say the image-based lighting um, and an HDR work that you've done. Where um, can you tell us a bit about how the inspiration or I where the ideas came from, like how they kind of started to form? Yeah, abs absolutely. And I, I can kind of you know. Sometimes these things really do stick in your memory, like where, you know, an, an idea occurred for the first time. And, you know, in terms of like the high dynamic range uh, concept, that really did occur to me while I was developing film in, in the darkroom at the University High School, you know, you know your, your book uh, experience. And it was actually when I was just training to become a junior photographer in, in, in my junior year before I was the photo editor senior year. And they gave me 
some rolls of film to go shoot on my own camera. And um, I guess the expectation is I might have like shot my classmates and pictures of the school or something like that. I, I, I took them home and then in my backyard at 2 a.m. I set off fireworks and I shot long exposures of fireworks going off in my backyard. That's like the first <laughs> thing that I decided I wanted pictures of. And I developed it. And um, I remember that watching the fireworks, I just saw these individual sparks flying out of the, the little, you know, Roman candle or something there. And they looked like individual sparks. But then when I looked at the long exposure, they were they were these like long white streaks. It was black and white film. And actually, they were black streaks on the negative, And they, they print into white streaks. And that the the streaks even though I knew that those those little dots were only there for like a fraction of the exposure time of when the exposure was open, they were still fully saturating the film. It's like there's no way that the film could have obtained any more density than what it did, even though that streak was that little dot was like moving super fast. And so I realized that dot was that spark was too bright for the film to record. In fact, it was actually even a hundred times too bright. For the film to record because that that streak was clearly a hundred times longer than it was wide and then it dawned on me that these numbers on the shutter dial were like that went to a thousandth of a second all the way to like one second and those huge numbers that that actually did mean there's that amount of variation in light in the world and that you really have to choose which part of it you want to capture when you're taking a picture and so when i finally had um you know access to 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 digital cameras and i got interested in actually trying to digitally simulate motion blur um you know it, it felt like i have to use you know floating point numbers not just you know zero to 255 black to white on the screen but things that can go much brighter than the screen if i want to get the right result of what a streak would look like in motion blur and i think it was the cover of the 1994 engineering yearbook summary at berkeley where I was able to, um, you know, get some renderings of, I guess uh, it was Brian Murtick's research of dynamic simulation, and they wanted to show it convincingly on the cover of the of the research summary. And I asked him, and he asked if I could help him. I said, well, render out a bunch of images, but render the, the specular pass out separately. So I could take those specular highlights, multiply them by, you know, a big number, get them to be above the white point of the display. And then when you average them all together from the sequence, then those little highlights could leave a streak, just like a real specular highlight might leave a streak. And that ended up there. And that kind of inspired me to start trying to take real photographs that covered the full dynamic range of a scene. And that was the SIRGRAPH 97 paper on high dynamic range uh, photography, where you shoot these bracket exposures put it together and it was this image inside Stanford Memorial Church that I think really sold the, the technique because I took a standard low dynamic range digital image. It was actually on film and then got scanned on photo CD. And I blurred that standard dynamic range image and there's some super bright stained glass windows in there. But once it motion blurred, they kind of got muddy because I had no idea of how bright that window really was and how much of a streak it should really leave when it was, when it was blurry. And I took, the whole exposure series assembled the image, got high dynamic range pixel values, blurred that, which left the bright streak. And then, you know, you have to clip it to display it in the paper. I actually sent it back through the film response curve. So I simulated the, the film curve that it originally had. And it looked um, very close to the photo that I took 
in Stanford Memorial Church where I physically moved the camera, rotated on the tripod during the exposure when I generated real motion blur. And I showed that you can get the right answer to what a real scene would look like to a real camera in motion if you do high dynamic range photography. And that was, I think, the, the first thing that was like a film relevant uh, use of high dynamic range imaging. Even if your display isn't high dynamic range or your movie movie theater isn't high dynamic range, you can still get a much more compelling result. And that was some of the first uses of the people in movies who started using it was to do convincing motion blur in scenes. Oh, interesting. Right. And then um, after that, you obviously you saw it being adopted. Um, how, what were some of the early adoptions of it and how did, how did it start to get into the film world? Well, uh, one of them, I guess it's in the, um, in the matrix sequels, there's a scene where, you know, kind of like a digital version of Neo is flying through, uh, the city and all of those buildings, you know, the, the folks over there at escape, they actually shot the, the images of, of those digital buildings. Uh, for the photogrammetry and high dynamic range mapped HDR images on the buildings. And then when those flew by Neo flying around, it left those those streaks. And that was something, you know, Dan Paponi called out as, you know, being inspired by the work that I'd shown at uh, SIGGRAPH. I think the first time they used that was actually in Mission Impossible 2 with Tom Cruise jumping out of the building at night. And uh, the buildings are like flying back as he's falling. And those left very convincing motion blur uh streak so that's like exactly the intended purpose so i was i was thrilled to uh i was thrilled to see that um the thing that happened though then is that just working with these images at some point it dawned on me that essentially these high dynamic range images are a record of the light that was in the scene and that if i could shoot a panorama in high dynamic range so that none of the light sources clip and some light sources get really bright. So you really have to shoot the shorter exposures for that, that I would have digitally recorded that light. And this could solve, you know, a tricky problem in visual effects is how do you light your CGI object to sit in the scene so that it looks like it's really there. So it looks like it's lit by the light that would have been on it if it were really there. And, you know, there's, there's ways of doing it without HDRI. You can kind of, you know, trial and error, move light sources around or try to write down where they came from. When I asked people how they did it, um, you know, because I thought like Jurassic Park was a pretty cool film with those dinosaurs tromping around amongst the actors. And ILM did a nice job with the, the integration back in 93. But when I asked them, you know, how they did it, you know, it's like, well, you know, we put a lot of artistic effort into getting this to look right. And yeah. You know, I wanted to do it myself. I want to make my own movie that looked like I'd put CGI stuff into real scenes convincingly. And I didn't think I could go through that. And I thought, you know, there's got to be an answer. There's got to be something that like with technology, with science, you can get the right answer to this. And once I realized I was capturing the light, then the next thing was to simulate it. And so I approached uh, Greg Ward, who was the author of the Radiance um, kind of like global illumination ray tracing system. And he was in my environment at Berkeley um, because uh, he was at like a Lawrence Berkeley labs where they were using this to simulate lighting and architecture. And I asked him, Hey, I've got these like high dynamic range images. Uh, I, I want to light some stuff. And I, I had studied how to write, you know, ray tracers and such. And I was about to go and kind of like add this into my own ray tracing code at some point. And he said, mm -hmm. you know what, if you do this and this, you should be able to do it in radiance. 
And it turns out you could. And that right. totally like jump-started uh, everything that you know we did. And our movies of uh, rendering of natural light and and Fiat Lux were actually rendered in in radiance. And I think they're two of the only like you know uh, you know movies that were that were uh, created using using that. We had to find a way to like render on the render farm and you know get it to do anti-aliasing and all of that stuff. But um, we, we we put that together, and uh, it was uh, it was great to be able to have have that available for those films. Uh it's you know interesting you should say that because the first 3d computer graphics that i ever did was in radiance um at university and i had to model our our lecture theater in a text editor and reproduce it and um do a comparison against the photograph that was our assignment it was alan chalmers at bristol university set set this assignment to compare a cg environment against a real photograph and it was an old photograph taken on an old camera it was quite it was quite hard to do to type numbers into a text editor and yeah take for granted now you get a user interface with a viewport and things like that that's right but like in, in rendering with natural light all of the 3d modeling for those uh, those little stands and those spheres that little arrangement of, of, of things on the pedestal all that was modeled in emacs which right. is a text yep. I, that was, I, that's why yeah. i did it in yep <laughs> And the equator, it was all procedural. I had like little sine waves going around to like sweep the things and such. Uh, but that's that's a fantastic assignment that Alan Chalmers gave you because just, a, you know, as you know, all of the things that you learn about what it takes to achieve reality when you actually try to achieve it. And that was very much the, um, you know, like I, I think Cornell started that with the Cornell box because the idea was mm -hmm. not just to render a Cornell box, but there actually was a real Cornell box. I got to see it when I visited Cornell when Don Greenberg had an event there in 1999 and the box was still around from I guess 13 years before from the 86 SIGGRAPH paper and the idea is like they'd photographed the real box with you know it's got a, a red wall and a, and a white wall and you can see the color bleed onto the floor and the ceiling in the back and then show generate the same image completely synthetically with a CGI model of the box and um you know cgi simulation of the lighting which they use radio radiosity for that and then it's like okay this is this is clearly working now uh, amazing stuff it must have been so exciting uh and imagine finding that what was that moment like when you realized that you you you'd found something new you'd found a way to capture light and then use it back even even more so it must have been very exciting it, I, I love, so I, I mean, I can really remember sitting in my office, which was 545 Soda Hall in, um, at, uh, at UC Berkeley. And that was, that was a, it was a cool office and a cool time. Cause like my office mates around that time were, uh, Chris Bregler, Thomas Leung, Alyosha Efro, Serge Belangi, and Gian Boshi. And, you know, if you're in the computer vision community, you can look up any one of those folks and and, and marvel at their uh, citation count on stuff that they've done since then. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, also, I think really just having these were all Jatendra Malik's uh, PhD students. And I, I stayed on as like a, a lingering postdoc for, you know, three years, um, not realizing at the time even how valuable that time would be. Like, I'm, I'm still able to, you know, spend all the time writing a lot of code but still working with uc berkeley students and i don't have to technically manage anybody yet it's like i'm so so glad i took that time 
Um, but with all that other brain power in the room, it just kind of elevates your level because you know they're doing completely cool stuff over there. Or you want to be doing cool stuff. And I would see these renderings coming out of Radiance and, you know, I put like the candlestick on the table with the little spheres and make my funny little arrangement. And then I light it and then just looks like a photo that I'd taken of these things. It was like this, this creative power that I can make things happen. And, um, and it, you know, and to, to impress the office mates was great. Um, something that's kind of interesting, if you look at the end of the SIGGRAPH 98 paper on image-based lighting, uh, which I think is still one of the longest titled papers in SIGGRAPH history. It was called Rendering Synthetic Objects into Real Scenes, Bridging, Bridging Traditional and Synthetic uh, Graphics with Image-Based Rendering and High Dynamic Range, high dynamic range Photography. I mean, I wish I just called it Image-Based Lighting. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the, the 98 paper at the end, there's this little thing of dominoes falling down on what was my kitchen table at kind of like my shared house at uh at berkeley at the time and i proudly went and i showed that to one of my mentors uh, a media artist named michael namark back at interval research corporation and interval had been had, had funded some of my postdoc work there and i was very proud to show him i think i got this new technique i put these things on here it looks like it's relevant for, for you know cool visual effects stuff and he agreed that this is a good technique. Yes, I got one. Okay. But he also just like kind of very subtly said, yeah, I think you could probably do something a little more impressive with it. And that was, that was like, that was my cue. That's where Fiat Lux came from. I went from right. two inch dominoes on that table to eight meter monoliths going down the nave of St. Peter's Basilica. And that was inspired by, you know, Michael suggesting, hey, there, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be something better you can do with this. So I actually looked inside and said, like, is there a story I want to tell? Is there a feeling that I want to, want to try to get out there? And, you know, kind of this, this imagery of, of, you know, sort of like the conflict between science and the church kind of embodied with Galileo, like, it gave me something to do with it and some need in order to kind of create those, um, those visuals. Well, it definitely worked. I think it's good advice. Um, it definitely made it a, a beautiful film to watch, regardless of whether you're interested in computer graphics or not. And it's obviously had so much new technique in there, but it was a cool film. I, I think it was definitely not more than a tech demo. It was definitely a film that st stood up in its own right. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about the Campanile movie and, and how that came about. Yeah, so the Campanile movie uh, actually happened before all of the, um, you know, the image-based lighting and high dynamic range imaging. And the Campanile movie also kind of inspired high dynamic range imaging because I'd had to be very careful to photograph all of the, um, uh, all, all of the, the images of the Campanile and the environment in the same lighting. And I realized like the only way to really do that is under cloudy conditions. Because if it's like sunlit on one side and dark on the other side, then I'll have to change the exposure on the camera a lot. Uh, so I ended up shooting some of that material at like 6 a.m. before the sun came up just to get like flat lighting over uh, everything. And I thought like, well, if I had HDR, I could just cover, cover, uh, uh, cover all of that. But, um, you know, the, the Campanile movie, 
really like the beginnings of that go back to a computer vision class that I took at uh, the University of Michigan. So like when I was a sophomore, uh, I was looking for classes to take and I saw computer vision. I had no idea what it was, but it sounded cool and sounded like it involved robots. And I signed up for it. It was technically a graduate level class, but I showed up as a sophomore and they taught us how to do um, image segmentation and um, write a stereo algorithm and try to do some object identification. And we, when we had to write a stereo algorithm, we had like, the, like these two aerial photos of the United States Pentagon, like military building. And they were a stereo pair. So it was really cool. If you cross fuse them, you'd see the Pentagon in 3D. And the assignment was to um, solve for the 3D depth by basically figuring out which pixels here are which pixels there, you know, by comparing pixel neighborhoods, if that's how you want to do it, and then get a depth map. And there was another image of like going down a hallway. And I realized that if you take the image, this is 1989, if you take that image and you project it onto the depth map and then view it from a different point of view, you've shifted the perspective of the scene. And you've kind of turned a 2D image into a 3D scene that you can kind of fly around. And that sounded super cool. So, you know, a little bit of playing around with this at, at Michigan for like a course assignment, which I did get full points on that assignment. It was good. Um, and then summer of 1991, uh, I think I'd recently watched the Back to the Future sequels. And as we know, like at this point, the DeLorean's flying around all over the place. And I uh, had gotten a hand-me-down car from my mom, which was a which was a 1980 Chevette, which I kind of felt I wanted to believe was a lot like a DeLorean. But uh, <laughs> like if you could only just like change like the the vertical scaling of it and just make it half as tall, like it would kind of be the same. It was the same color, it was silver and all that. I thought at least I could try to make it look like the car could fly around. That would be fun. And I had this summer job where there was like kind of like a delay in the contract. I had nothing to do for two weeks. And I had access to a video digitizer, a Windows PC, and a Linux computer, a Sun 380, like an IBM 386 PC and a Sun 380. And um, I decided, you know what? I'm going to make a 3D model of my car and I'm going to fly it across the screen. That's, that's what I'm doing for the next two weeks. And so on, on June 14th, 91, the day before my, my birthday, I was out parking my car next to a parking structure in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. Um, I got help from my friend Ken Brownfield, who helped hold a green screen, which is actually a green blanket behind the car. Um, and I took pictures of it from a bunch of different angles. I wrote an algorithm to... Uh, derive the 3D shape of the car, like polygonal model of the car from the photographs. And then the real thing that I want to do is that idea that I'd had at the University of Michigan back in 1989, which was project the images as texture maps onto the geometry. And that colored in all of the little polygons of the car so that when I flew it around, it didn't just look like a gray CGI model. It looked like my car with the chipped paint on the roof and the bent license plate and you could read the numbers on the particular license plate and this was this was like you know it was kind of like an early form of photogrammetry and image-based modeling and rendering uh for that and so when i applied to 
graduate school, which would be the next summer, I wrote in my college or my grad school application, I want to fly around cities virtually. I want to make CGI models of buildings and cities and fly around them. And that's, that's what I want to do for my PhD thesis. And so I started working on that and, you know, modeling whole buildings and, and cityscapes like requires like more advanced photogrammetry techniques. And I was lucky that my PhD advisor, just Malik, um, put me in touch with a postdoctoral researcher named CJ Taylor, who had been working on reconstructing polyhedral models from, from line, line segments identified in photographs. And the software that we wrote called Facade was basically able to reconstruct uh, polyhedral models of architectural scenes based on uh, line segments that you observe. So kind of a twist on normal photogrammetry, which is based on points and you triangulate where the points are. This, you just have to find any part of a line of an architectural edge and that becomes a constraint for the solve. And it solves for where the cameras were so you can do the projective texture mapping. Uh, I came up with a technique called view dependent texture mapping so that if you photographed your building, you know, from a whole bunch of different directions, like some from the right, some from the front, some from the left, and then you virtually do like a virtual camera path across the building, it'll actually cross dissolve which images it uses as the projective texture maps based on where you're looking at it from. So if you're viewing it from the right virtually, it'll use a texture map that was shot from a similar angle from the right. And that makes a lot of stuff like view dependent reflectance and any unmodeled 3D little protrusions or dips in the model kind of look a lot better if you do that. And that's actually essentially the same idea as a, as a surface light field that we were able to get into our SIGGRAPH 96 paper, which was presented um, just moments before the two well-known papers on light fields were presented at SIGGRAPH in the, in the first session uh, then. And, you know, reconstructed a couple of buildings, including the Berkeley Campanile, from a single photograph, that was actually kind of fun. I showed that with enough architectural constraints, you can build a full 3D model of a tower from a single photo that's pretty accurate because of all the symmetry. Um, my old high school building, I guess out of a little bit of competitive juices, I reconstructed uh, Stanford's Hoover Tower as well because Berkeley and Stanford have a little bit of a rivalry and you know they have this you know, little problem. Their tower is only 270 eight feet tall, whereas the Berkeley Campanile is 307 feet tall. So, um, you know, it seemed like they could use a little help anyway. Um, but um, the, um, you know, these examples were, were fun and uh, the paper got accepted as SIGGRAPH, which was exciting. I actually had a piece in the art show that year with a reconstruction of the Rouen Cathedral and projecting different time of day pictures on that in an interactive installation that I did with media artist Golan Levin we'd worked together under Michael Namark at Interval Research Corporation. So that was a fun thing to, to play with uh, back then. But then again, I, I kind of felt like, okay, well, how do we kick this up a notch? How do we turn it up to 11? And I had the sense that if you could see not only a single piece of architecture that you can turn around, but if you could see its environment as well and fill up every single pixel of the screen with a photoreal view into some other world, and you could sense kind of the lighting consistency between that environment and that 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 thinner piece of the environment, it would look really realistic. It would be cool. I just got 
so we've got to model the environment, we've got to model the tower. And that was not quite the next thing I did. I finished the PhD thesis on, I think, December 19th, 1996, went home for Christmas break, came back on January 3rd. Uh, my advisor, Jatendra, said, hey, what about that high dynamic range imaging idea? Did you want to try to do something for SIGGRAPH with that? And I told him, uh, sure, let's do it. So we wrote that paper in nine days and submitted it on like January 12th. <laughs> and then I slept for three days and then, okay, let's make the Campanile movie. And we had two months basically to get that done by the submission deadline in early April. Um, and I was very lucky to bring in kind of a, a team of Berkeley students. Uh, Jatender gave me a new grad student that, um, you know, was just a first year. And he said, okay, you can work with him for the first year and teach him a few things before I, I work with him for the PhD. Um, and there was a master's student uh, that we uh, that we brought in and uh, a couple of undergrads. And we, we just tried to make that film happen. And this year happens to be the 25th anniversary of the uh of, of the campanile movie uh at uh at, at, at siggraph so i've been looking through some of the old old stuff for that and it was um it was a fun time of not really knowing what we were doing but when we first got those renderings of like you know the tower turning around with the background behind it and it filled up the whole tv set we actually field rendered it at, at 60 frames per second at the time and we could render it in real time because we had a silicon graphics reality engine too and we did all the real-time stuff for that. That was just like, you know, just like tingles down your spine. I can't believe this is CGI. I can't believe it's not real. And, you know, scores of people from the computer science building would come in uh, to the little graphics side, which was 543 Soda Hall, and uh, take a look at that spinning around on a, on a Sony monitor, not unlike this one back here. Um, <laughs> just to see what that looked like. So I'm very happy that uh, that the SIGGRAPH Electronic Theater uh, accepted uh, that piece. And uh, I, I remember being particularly pleased that it was like in the same show with the with the visual effects from the from the special edition of Star Wars when they when they uh, re uh, revamped uh, some of those and our, our piece played just a couple of pieces uh, side by side from that in the show. Well, I think it deserved to be there for sure. Um, no, it's fascinating hearing about this is computer graphics history. Are you guys doing anything for the 25th anniversary? I would say yes. Keep your keep your eyes peeled. There will be some okay. some links uh, uh, posted uh, in a little bit. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, maybe one of the bigger things that you've worked on and you've worked on for a, quite a long time is the light stage. Um, can you tell us? I, what that is and how it works and how, how that came about. Yes, because actually some of the things that's been used for a lot aren't, aren't even what we originally were trying to do. So once, you know, I'd done, you know, work with image based lighting and shown that you can, you know, put CGI objects into your virtual scenes. Uh, and we use that for, you know, rendering with natural light and Fiat Lux. I got the sense at some point that, you know, if I'm going to continue my career as a filmmaker, I should probably make a movie that has people in it too, not just <laughs> architecture and objects. And uh, <laughs> so, so, somehow the development was arrested at some point. But um, I, I realized I'm not going to be satisfied putting like 
filming people on a green screen with just randoid studio lighting and trying to composite it in and, and sell people as if that person's really there. Um, it looked too hard to do it. I was aware that like a good cinematographer can make it work, but it didn't feel like a repeatable process that should have a technically correct answer to. And I knew that we were recording the light that maybe an actor would need if they were going to be inserted into a scene. But we didn't have a way of rendering like, you know, a real human being in a global illumination algorithm with image-based lighting. So the question is, how do you turn this digital 360 image into a real 360 degrees of illumination on somebody? How do you light somebody with a reproduction of that, of that real, uh, of that real lighting environment? And that was the idea for the light stage. So, you know, my, my first ideas for this is like, okay, we'll do it with a bunch of video projectors. We'll aim them onto different surfaces around the actor and we'll display these images of the actor around. And I borrowed the, the department video projector to do some tests, you know, down on the first floor of the computer science uh, building. And, um, you know, it was kind of cool. I could see this light reflecting on my face. It was like an image of the light. But then I just looked at the practicality of building, you know, essentially like a 360 Omnimax theater on a student budget with enough video projectors for that. And it just didn't compute. And I also realized probably that we wouldn't be able to uh, get enough contrast ratio. There'd be so much light bouncing around in the scene that, you know, it would muddy itself up. And as a result, like I, that wasn't the paper that I did for the follow-up to the image-based lighting paper. SIGGRAPH 99 was on inverse global illumination. But by the time it was ready to submit something to SIGGRAPH 2000, it's like I still really wanted to show real people lit by image-based lighting. And I realized, okay, if I can't build this ideal omnidirectional display device of a light stage, I could at least simulate what it would do by photographing a person lit by one lighting direction at a time. We built this gantry where you spun a light source around somebody. And if they stayed still, you get this data set of them lit from every direction light can come from. And then using the superposition principle of light, you can add those images together, tinted and scaled according to the colors and intensities of light in the environment, so that it ends up looking like they're lit by the light of that environment. If you had a lot of like, if you're in the Grace Cathedral light probe, you've got a lot of orange light coming from here. You've got a lot of cool light from above and you've got a lot of neutral light coming from the opposite side from the nave. And it basically takes those images lit from here, tints them orange, lit from here, keeps them neutral, lit from there, tints them blue, adds them all together. And now you've got the face lit by the light of Grace Cathedral because you've shot all those lighting passes of somebody. And that felt like a win. That, and then we did a new version with strobe lights for light stage two at USC. And turns out that's actually like useful data if you want to relight a real actor. And eventually if we figured out like these polarized gradient lighting conditions that really reveal surface structure of skin pores and fine creases and give you like 10th of a millimeter accurate photogrammetry. And that became something that, you know, they would send all the actors to us from you know, Avatar and Maleficent and Blade Runner 2049, all the way up to Free Guy is the, the, the latest one, I think, that's come out uh, for all that scanning. But really, the original intent was we want 
real world image based lighting, IBL, IRL, um, which uh, I almost have a license plate that says. But <laughs> what happened in, in actually in 2001, and this is work that got published uh, in our SIGGRAPH 2002 paper on lighting reproduction, uh, is that they came out with this uh, little uh, light source that had red, green, and blue LEDs in it. And it cost about a hundred bucks. It was a color kinetics, eye color MR light, and you could control it over USB and it wasn't too complicated to program it. And so I wrote a grant proposal that we want to do image-based lighting on real people. We bought 156 of these lights. We built a, a sphere to plug them all into. And uh, I worked with a, um, actually a summer intern, one of our greatest summer interns ever, Andreas Wenger uh, from Brown University he came over. And he wrote the software to take a light probe image and in real time drive this omnidirectional display of LEDs to display images of this virtual environment to illuminate the actor with the lighting. In our SIGGRAPH 2002 paper, there's four examples in it, one of which is lighting you know, uh, the actor with Grace Cathedral, one's lighting the actor with um, the rendering with natural light environment, the eucalyptus grove from Berkeley. One is in the uh, Galleria delle Uffizi. Um, it's kind of like that overcast strip of light between the buildings. And the final one well. used, used, uh, used the 3D model from our Parthenon project movie, which was like a year into its four-year production at the time. And we used that lit by Arnold um, to render a virtual light probe sequence going down the colonnade in the afternoon so that the actor would actually step into shadow and into sunlight and into shadow and into sunlight. We'd composite them in. Uh, it was uh, Alana Livna was our actress. So that when she's, you know, she's kind of walking in place and we'd composite her in, it should look like she's walking into sun and shadow as you go forward. And we, we rendered out virtual HDRI maps out of Arnold. Um, we were using Arnold in, in 2001 because Marcos Fajardo, who wrote Arnold, was actually a member of our laboratory at the time. That was a, that was a, oh, uh, moment. He had he'd um, started Arnold before, but then he contacted us and said, hey, you know, got stuff to do in LA. And I said, yeah, sure, come on, be like a visiting researcher with us. So we got to use Arnold for a while. And during that time, um, you know, we helped him implement the, uh, the image-based lighting features, or at least like cross-check that it's, that he's doing it right and everything. Um, is, it, is it true that it's named after Arnold Schwarzenegger? That, I believe that's true. Right. And uh, I was actually like technically Marcos reported to me at the time. And I, I, I feel like I might've failed as a manager at this point. Um, but the, uh, the, you know what the files are called if you have a, like an Arnold scene source files, a dot ASS file. So <laughs> that happened on my watch that it got named. I had, I had suggested Arnold render file, which I thought was suitable because it would be an ARF file and they they just I, I got overruled by I think Marcos and then also X-ray Halpern on my team at the time. So if you've ever had to deal with a .ass file, then that's uh, that that's where that that's fully Marcos Marcos can own that one. But anyway, um, so we anyway we showed like Arnold renderings basically lighting somebody. So we showed both real environments from HDRIs and virtual environments uh, from from Arnold renderings basically being displayed as images. Uh, on people. And uh, actually, I presented this work at SIGGRAPH 2002, 
2002. It was in San Antonio. It was a really fun place to have SIGGRAPH. And a friend of mine who's a visual effects supervisor named Johnny Banta um, and helped with a little bit of the background research for the paper, he was in the audience. And afterwards, he told me um, that, uh, like, you know, congrats, really good, good talk. Uh, and he said, and, and, and some like, and actually there were some really important people at your talk. And I said, oh, really? That's awesome. Like, like, Hey, who was there? He says, well, like John Knoll from ILM was at your talk. And I said, oh my gosh, that's so great. John Knoll from ILM was at my talk. And then Johnny said, yeah, he didn't like it. (laughs) Oh no. He said, yeah, he kind of threw up his hands and said, ah, who needs it? Wow. (laughs) And, uh, you know, at the time. You know, John, I guess 2002, he just worked on probably Star Wars episode two at that point, I think a lot, um, or maybe certainly episode one, maybe episode two he'd been working on. And, you know, they had to get as good as anybody's ever gotten at filming actors on a green screen, lighting them so that they'll look right in the composites. And so, you know, he had some authority to, to say that on. But, you know, the the magical thing is that, I mean, you know, after we actually used this technique in production for movies like Spider-Man 3 and The Social Network and Gravity, that it started to look like this was going to be like, you know, a useful enough thing. And he was one of the early adopters of scaling it up to to full scale, you know, virtual production stages. In particular, in his amazing work that he did for the film Rogue One, Mm -hmm. um, he got, you know, a ton of LED panels to display images of the virtual scenes to be the lighting on the objects and lit um, kind of like a spaceship uh, cockpit. So like he had a little mock-up of like, you know, an X-wing cockpit and a pilot in there. And just like we had played back the renderings, uh, you know, of the Parthenon and the changing lighting on Alana as she was going through, they played back the lighting that they'd rendered out from their renderers of space battles onto the uh, virtual X-Wings. And, you know, when this work came out and I was on the Academy SciTech Council with that at the time, like he spoke very highly of it about using these LED lights as, you know, like, or things that you might've thought of as displays as light, light source and doing image-based lighting on real actors and sets. And so that kind of helped, um, you know, and. Now there's there's even more interest. There's, I mean, I I think we've lost count of how many virtual production stages there are out there. There's a lot. There's a website that attempts to track how many of them there are. It's the sea of dots. There's a lot of them, for sure. So um, this is played forwards into your work in virtual production. Um, is there anything that you can talk about in terms of what you're doing at the moment? Is it all completely super secret? Um, particularly well, the with thing the, is, the Netflix mean, stuff. Yeah, there is some stuff to talk about, actually, and and really, there's, I mean, and there, there, there's more more than more than time that we probably uh, have. But you know, this this basic idea of surrounding actors with LEDs to light them with images of, of virtual environments that's that's 20 years old now, and we've continued yeah. working on it for 20 years. And there's a lot of research papers nobody's gotten to, you know, even using in production yet. Starting to, and that's exciting. I hope we'll be some of the people to do it. But one of the um, things that I noted even back 20 years ago in that paper um, is that 
the like the color rendition accuracy of these RGB LED lights is kind of poor. Um, I showed at the end of that 2002 paper, like this is the spectrum of uh, an actual, like an RGB LED source displaying quote unquote white. And it makes white by like a little spike of red spectrum, a little spike of green spectrum, a little spike of blue spectrum. It doesn't look like daylight spectrum. It's the same color as daylight, but it's not the same spectrum. So you can fool your eye that you're seeing the right color, but it doesn't light stuff right. Because once it interacts with the spectrum of colorful shirts and also human skin, another spectrum we put in that paper is here's the human skin spectrum. And we showed they kind of match up in a funny way. What really happens, like the first thing you might notice stepping onto a virtual production stage and you're lit by the LEDs there is that you kind of look pink or reddish. You pick up extra red color. Dark skin tones pick up extra red. Um, light skin tones pick up extra red and a bit of extra blue and go a bit magenta. And this is something that you cannot fix by dialing the lighting back away from red on the stage because then all your neutral tones are gonna go cyan. Mm -hmm. It just cannot be fixed. The problem is that human skin keeps reflecting more and more light as you go toward the longer wavelengths, getting up into you know where eventually you've got the near infrared. And that red LED on LED panels is chosen pretty deep into the reds for reasons of having a wider color gamut. So it looks like you know red to our eye, but of all the reds they could have chosen, it's one that lights skin pretty funny because it really just glows us up. And we did quite a bit of work. Like 2003, we basically started building light sources, solid state light sources out of multiple LEDs. We made like a nine channel light, which is kind of, you know, things that like Ari Sky panels do, which have wonderful color rendition do today. We did a paper on that in 2003 and we showed we can fix this color rendition issue. In 2016, I got to work with uh, a PhD student named Chloe Legendre, who I'm working with at Netflix now. And um, we had built a, you know, one of these like, you know, spherical VP stage light stages where all of the lights, instead of red, green, blue to display the images, we actually had red, green, blue, amber, cyan, and white, which fill in the gaps in the spectrum. And we showed that if you just know what a color chart looks like in your environment, in addition to the HDRI map, you can pretty straightforwardly solve for how to drive your LEDs, all six channels of them, to match both the colors that you see in the environment or that the camera would see, and also the color rendition intent of those lights. So things lit by it look the same as they would if they're lit by the real environment. And we got some side-by-sides of people in the real world and in the light stage and they are so close with no color correction whatsoever that I actually had all the results backwards in my slides for about a year until Chloe <laughs> told me I had it wrong and I had to fix it. <laughs> so we've been very excited at the prospect of, you know, virtual production. It's just like when I first started talking to LED panel folks about like, hey, you know what? We really need, can we get at least like the color white in your LED panel? Like, can we have red, green, blue, white? Like we showed in, in Chloe's PhD work, that'll that'll solve most of the problem right there. It'd be nice to have the yellow and the cyan too. But if we just get white, okay, we can make it livable. And they looked at me funny because if you add white, that's a color it can already make. It will not increase your color gamut whatsoever. And if you're trying to say that your panel is awesome because it has a wide color gamut, 
that's not going to help. Um, in fact, panels that have a wider color gamut have worse color rendition. They light stuff funnier because they have to put the RGB LEDs further out in weird parts of the spectrum to do that. But it dramatically increases the color rendition. I'm, as it turns out, nowadays, I think we're not too far away from people releasing panels that will have that additional color. And, it, and it's probably going to be white. And we know how to drive it. We just hope that they'll let us drive it the way that, you know, Chloe said to do it in 2016. But the paper that we're about to show at um, SIGGRAPH, which is actually the first paper of the DigiPro conference, which is co-located with SIGGRAPH, and it's on the Sunday before uh, SIGGRAPH, I think on August uh, 6th or 7th, um, looks at the problem. It realizes, you know what? We have actually built a lot of these virtual production stages already, and they're all just RGB, and they all have serious issues with color rendition which cause a lot of, you know, color correction having to be done in the end. And we figured out a way to solve for optimal linear color correction matrices that basically fix most of the problem, even in the RGB world. And the thing is, what you have to do is what you photograph on the camera, you can't make it look right to the eye. It's still going to look weird when you're on set. And that's probably the biggest reason why we should still go and get these white LEDs into the into the panels so that people don't get driven nuts with the lobsterization of everybody. But what you can do is you can solve for a color correction matrix at the end that basically fixes it. The big thing that you need to do is you need to desaturate out red and do some other fixes. And that can be done with a color correction matrix, a linear color correction matrix. It doesn't mess up linearity. Um, the thing that you might worry about, though, is that if you've solved for this color correction matrix that you have to like either jam into your camera or post-process your footage with, is that now your hard-fought in-camera backgrounds that you've put effort into making those look right, which you can do using you know things that Epic Games has put out there on white papers and this um, uh, you know cool OpenVP Cal uh, project uh, that uh, some colleagues at Netflix have worked on. Um, you might be worried that it's going to mess those up because you're going to, you know, you got your colors to look right in camera on your stage for the in-camera background, and now you're going to mess it up with a desaturation matrix. So the point of the paper is what you can do, because these are all matrices, you can invert that matrix and apply the inverse of that matrix to your in-camera pixels in the frustum so that your frustum now looks like it has bad color rendition, just like everything else on your stage that's lit by the rest of the LEDs. And your content in your frustum has a bit too much red and a bit too much saturation so that it looks consistent with the way people do and it needs to be corrected too. So without having to separate foreground and background, you put it all through that post-correction matrix and now everything kind of just works and it's pretty close. It doesn't fix all the color rendition issues, but I think it fixes considerably more than half of them. Maybe even three quarters of color rendition is kind of solved and skin looks a heck of a lot better. Fantastic. Well, I, I hope that they're, they're listening to this in the panel making world and doing what, uh, what needs to be done. It sounds like there's a lot. Uh, it's, a, it's a big job to make color work in these volumes and clearly there's a lot of popularity for them and it's important work to be done 
Um, I wanted I wanted to ask you. I know we're we're getting close to time, but I wanted to ask you a little about um, light fields. Are you still actively working on anything to do with light fields? Um, how how is that whole conversation going? Well, light fields uh, was something that I got to work on it at, at Google. It was super fun. Um, I was happy we were able to do light field stills and light field video. I got to work with some incredibly talented engineers on that. And as, 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 uh, as it sounds like you're aware, we actually did, while I was at Google, get to release on Steam a nice demo called Welcome to Light Fields, um, uh, you know, which was a chance to try to do something creative with uh, the technology. Um, you know, full story is really that, um, you know, at some point there was going to be a budget to actually make like, you know, a, a kind of a film using that technology. And at some point that, you know, when Google kind of got out of VR, the budget got cut and I ended up having to make that piece out of all of our test material. <laughs> so we did the best <laughs> that we could out of what we had laying around. So I, I hope people enjoyed that. Um, we did get to the point of shooting some light field video with a rig that we demoed at the SIGGRAPH, whatever creative applications laboratory uh, a couple of years ago called the Brutus rig. And it was made out of 24 Z cams, which were synchronized and they had fisheye lenses. They looked out in different directions. And, you know, just because priorities shifted around to Google, all the stuff has been sitting around in the can all this time and it never got processed. And it's some great stuff. It was shot during COVID uh, in my, on my, uh, on the deck of my backyard. And I invited some of my favorite friends over who are incredibly talented folks who play bagpipes or, you know, do comedy acting or, or Chinese violin and are artists in residence um, to just basically be interviewed as a light field or, or perform in a light field, like five feet in front of the camera. Um, and uh, it's all just been sitting in the can unprocessed. And there's been so many good research papers at SIGGRAPH since then. Uh, and since like, you know, the, the light field video solutions that we proposed that I think are ripe for application to this data. So I've been working with a USC student named Nathan Fairchild over the last couple of months to choose some clips from this material, uh, transcode them, apply appropriate LUT and such, and then document it. And we're planning on releasing around SIGGRAPH the raw data of this 24 camera 4K video. Um, for researchers and whoever wants to play around with it, poke around with it, um, and uh, see if they can turn it into a, a an immersive VR six degree of freedom light field experience. That's exciting. Well, I remember just getting glimpses of it, seeing the the Lytro camera, and just thinking like it was no, this is the future. This is how we're going to be making everything, and then thinking about how much data it might produce. And I, it seems like it's it's still a work in progress and hopefully it will continue yeah i would i would love to see if, if anyone wants to try to take what what we published at google for how to do it and kind of reduce the data into like uh multi-sphere layered depth images that would be cool but also new neural representations would be fantastic as well right um what are you most excited about at the moment what's the future look like for you I, I'm excited about seeing how filmmakers are going to be embracing this technology. We are ultimately, you know, the goal is to try to create tools for, for filmmakers. And every so often, this beautiful marriage of 
art and technology comes together. I think, you know, gravity was, you know, a really great example of that, um, with using like the lighting reproduction techniques, um, for, you know, rendering astronauts spinning out of control in space and the lighting looks like it's doing the right thing. Uh, I think the matrix was a beautiful example of using the techniques that we developed at Berkeley for photogrammetry and image-based rendering to create these virtual camera moves through scenes of this world in the matrix. It just was like, there's this wonderfully meta thing that like the matrix was actually created using state of the art kind of virtual reality technology to do the visual effects for that. And I think that with the advances that we're seeing and we're trying to help make too in virtual production, there's going to be some scenes and some visions that the filmmakers will have that really take the technology to the next level creatively. And it won't be just like, well, we saved money from having to go out to the real desert and we just displayed the light from the desert in the studio, right? There's, there's things ripe for the picking that maybe no one's quite seen yet that they're going to get and it's going to blow everybody away and it's going to be the next matrix or the next gravity. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that and fingers, fingers crossed I get to be part of it somehow. I was going to ask if you you uh, want to make another movie. You said at the at the beginning, um, I'd love. I I, love to I, see I, I would I would love to do that. I'm inspired by. I mean, the other thing that I realized, another reason why I probably haven't made my own movie in a while, is that it's also incredibly satisfying to to help somebody who's you know a truly talented filmmaker make their movie and right. to feel that you contributed something to that to something that's just so much larger than yourself. Um, you know, which we've gotten to do, you know, several times to, to, to various degrees. I am inspired by like both, you know, Tim Weber, the visual effects supervisor for, for, for Gravity and Paul Franklin. It's like the founder of DNEG. They're both doing uh, their own films now. And uh, in some cases, working with virtual production technology uh, to do that. So I'm going to look and see how it works out for those guys. I think it's going okay so far. And maybe at some point I'll I'll, I'll find an opportunity if that's a if that's a possibility. It's it's really cool to see what um, new the new generation are coming up with as well. I think with the the fact that people now have access to what was hundreds or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of equipment a long time ago. Now, people with a couple of thousand dollars for a computer and a free piece of software, with Unreal Engine, or you know some some of the other technologies that are now available blender and unreal and with very little relative to where we were before you can you can now make your own and anybody can can do it I, I think i feel like it's time for another george lucas to appear or you know somebody not needing a huge budget to be able to be really creative with it i think that's great i think that's so important for democratizing the technology and getting you know kind of like the economic efficiencies out of that the other thing that, I, that I'd want to add to it and also point out is that like all of the stuff that we did, you know, where we managed to, to do something that was new and not done before, part of why we got to do it is that like, because the tools didn't exist yet and, you know, just willing to deal with the pain of that. So when, when we made the Campanile movie, like, digital movie cameras like were not accessible like this was 1997 and the sony bx1000 came out that year and the firewire capture card to digitize the footage came out several months later 
So I actually had to edit the first version of the Campylemi movie out of the S video jack from the VX1000 because that was the only way to get the video out. And then I remastered it in actual DV when you could do Firewire. And when I look at the kind of work that made Star Wars possible, that made the Matrix possible, that made Gravity possible, it's it's folks who, you know, they had this creative vision. They realized maybe the technology can 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 meet it there. But they really took technology that there, there wasn't any real solid reason to believe it was going to be able to possible be possible to do it. And they just made it happen anyway. And I'd encourage, you know, folks who really want to get on the map in terms of doing something that gets some attention and blows people away. It'll be something that the tools aren't just necessarily sitting right there under under your drop down menu yet. And you're going to have to do you're, you're going to have to bleed a little bit for it. And um, that's uh, um, the fact that we do have so many of these things becoming standard processes. That's all a platform from which we can use to retire. Right. Any any advice to aspiring filmmakers, uh, particularly technology based filmmakers? I don't know if that's the right word for it, but people interested in pushing this edge that you're describing, do you have any advice for them? How how to go about it if they feel like they don't they lack the resources or the community or i think you know you need to have just some freaking resolve uh mm -hmm. for it and I, I you know i i honestly think uh you know be, being being in your being in your 20s can be a great time to find that resolve because you're really not thinking about um too many other constraints of life uh, at that point and you can really throw your whole energy into something and you can be a bit infectious like other people will kind of you know help you or they'll they'll get out of your way or they'll or they'll 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 they'll, they'll contribute and this is the kind of thing that you should be doing and you just have to really really run with it not all attempts to combine technology and art or new tech and new art like go amazingly well unfortunately and you know, the, the worst thing is that you do something that's like neither good technology nor good art. And, you know, mm. that's not the kind of stuff that gets gets remembered. If both of them are above threshold, if one of them is great and the other one's above threshold, then you're going to be remembered, right? Like you need to have like either awesome tech with like pretty good creative application or, you know, awesome new creative vision with pretty novel good tech. If you max out both of them, then my gosh, you're, you're great. But I, either one of those, you're, you're, you're still going to be taking the ball down the field uh, in a big way. And um, I, yeah, I, I'm still actually trying to dissect how things went as well as they did for my little group I had at Berkeley in the 90s when we were making uh, the films. Um, I, I just remember those those months trying to create the Sagraph electronic theater films. I wake up every morning early, kind of with the residual image of a train coming at me, which was like the deadline for when this film has to be done and really having no actual plan of how to do it. Just knowing I'm going to get in there. I'm going to try to make as much progress as I can. Uh, I'm so lucky that I had you know, Berkeley, Berkeley undergrads to help on these films that, you know, worked just as hard as I did in a lot of cases to, to make these things happen. And, um, you know, getting to it, all of the films also like achieved maybe like 55 to 60% of the original vision 
of what we had. And so when we finally submitted the thing, I was like deflated for a day or two because it's like, oh my God, like, did we even come up with anything good? It's like, we were going to do this, we're going to do this. It wasn't until like about three days later when I'd gotten some sleep and taken a trip somewhere or something and watched the tape again. It's like, oh, actually, this might be kind of good. And you can kind of reevaluate it. So um, I, I encourage anyone else, try to go down that process because I want to watch your film. I think it's going to be pretty cool. Well, it sounds like there's some there's some great advice mixed in there. I think clearly community is important, being around other smart people, having the right kind of environment to gestate these ideas, but also having the, the resolve and having the, the commitment to the idea and you know, make it, dedicating yourself to it, having a deadline, not being able to get out of it and having to fix it, um, setting yourself big challenges. Uh, I think there's some some fantastic advice. Paul, um, is there anything that you want to share with the world? Anything that you would like to highlight? Any place where people can follow you? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I've got a website, debevic.org. I think I'm debfx on uh, Twitter. Scott Stockdyke, who's the visual effects supervisor that we worked with on Spider-Man 2, was the guy who said, hey, Paul, you should get a Twitter account. And so I went and opened up debfx. So I'll post links to papers and, and talks uh, there. And I would say, get yourself to SIGGRAPH, the SIGGRAPH conference. Um, I got to go to my first SIGGRAPH in 1994, and it changed my life. Um, it, it, like, I saw the SIGGRAPH 94 electronic theater, and I still remember, like, getting to see the behind the scenes of how they made Forrest Gump and just realizing, like, wow, this is how I not only, like, you know, learn the secrets of what's behind stuff, but I can meet the people who do it. And there's a lot of information out there on the internet these days. There's a lot of stuff you can find online and learn online. That's all great. But there's no substitute for like actually going to the conference, sitting through the talks, making sure you get enough sleep so that your brain's in a position to absorb it the next morning. There's lots of things to do in the evenings, you know, with receptions and stuff. But like get there, go to that first talk, go to all the talks during the day. And, and and absorb and 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 meet people you'll just learn stuff that you'll 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 never just randomly encounter online right and a good good opportunity to meet other like-minded people and dig into that the community aspect of it because all of this stuff gets made by many of us that get together and collide and collide our ideas together and yeah i i want to go this year i hope i can i'm not sure that i can but i love sigraf too um my first one, I remember uh, falling asleep in the theater because I was so tired and flown yeah. from England. And, yeah, but amazing, amazing event. I, I, uh, I'm a huge fan of it. Um, uh, congratulations on becoming the, the governor at uh, the Academy as well. That's it. Yeah, amazing. That sounds very uh, cool. Yeah, amazing position. Um, I've gotten to be on the uh, the executive committee and the Academy SciTech Council for you know the most of the last decade, uh, and uh, yeah, it's thrilling that the, that the that the membership you know thought that I could help represent them within the academy and also with the, uh, the industry. Visual effects professionals, you know, they're responsible for more than half the box office of Hollywood at this point, and. We need to recognize that and we need to honor that. And I think that's a, a great thing for the Academy to be doing. Well, thanks for contributing to it. And uh, yeah, we could definitely, as a, an industry, use more help and representation for sure. And uh, yeah, Paul, thank you so much for, for joining us here tonight. Um, 
been a, a real pleasure to get to talk to you. I feel like um, we could probably do another couple of episodes at least. Um, so maybe you get to have you back one day. But um, anytime, anytime. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, uh, thank you again. And thanks also to our listeners for tuning in tonight. We had a lot of people tune in live um, to anyone listening to the recording as well. Uh, thanks for listening. And you'll catch us again in a, in a couple of weeks for another episode. And um, you can follow us at becomecgpro.com if you're interested in our school and classes um, and our Facebook group as well. But uh, thank you again. Um, good to see you, Paul. And we'll see you again soon, everybody out there.